even though Twitter is is almost non-existent nowadays, I still like am really big on film Twitter or film. What does anyone call it film X? I don't think anyone's doing that. No, I think it's all it's film called Twitter. film Twitter. No matter what people say, but I just I just saw before hopping on. There's been a. Uh, it's funny how the cycle of things happen on film Twitter. Like recently, like every three months, people fall in love with the pirate series again. Mm-hmm. We're like, wow, we didn't know how great we had it with like the first three movies. Um, but right now, I just saw Muppets are trending on on Twitter, mm. and someone asked the question. And I want to ask you, Thomas: Is what's a Muppet literary adaptation you want to see? Oh man, uh, I mean, I think I actually said this recently on the podcast, but I'm a huge Great Expectations. Oh yeah, fan. So that that would be pretty dope. I think. <laughs> would you do Miss Piggy as Mrs. Haversham or as? Uh, I have great, great expectations. I think you're more well read than I am. Than so, I, I, so, so there's like you know, there's like the old the old crone that's like loves torturing him with her like beautiful granddaughter. Uh-huh. So she have Miss Piggy as or both. She could do both. She could, she could play do both. both. Yeah. Is, she a, is it a dual role? Yeah. No, no, no. no it's not. A, it's uh, I've never seen it played as a you're, dual you're gonna role, make but, it a dual role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could do that. Like if you did like a a. a Prince and the Popper, and just it would be Kermit playing Kermit both mm-hmm. times. Count of Monte Cristo, I think, would also be great. That's another. That'd be why. It's <laughs> another favorite of mine. What, what? So, so would would he? Would Kermit be uh, Edmund Dantes? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, for sure. And then, and then Fozzie would be like, would Fozzie or Gonzo that be like his like? Is it, they have like a mentor of some kind? And he has a mentor, and he, and he has like a like a manservant. Um, okay. So I feel like I feel like maybe you'd do a, a human as the mentor. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. And then like Fozzie as the manservant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then Robin could be his son that he comes back uh, for. Okay. Yeah. Sam the Eagle's <laughs> got to be one of the bad guys. <laughs> his name Sweetums. Sweetums was always uh, Sweetums. Uh, Uncle Uncle Deadly, wasn't he? He was one of the ones that they always made the bad guy. Yeah. No. Yeah. Sweetums is always like the one. Um that is the bad guy and i feel like i feel like there was one because i think is i've I've watched so much muppet content over the years where i think sometimes it feels like a fever dream <laughs> like you know what i mean like that like mm-hmm. this because because there was one there was one thing i rented a lot of, i think i talked about on the show with sean we did our muppet christmas carol episode um was that i uh i remember watching it was the muppet theater muppet classic theater i think is what it was mm-hmm. where it was they did a uh, um I think Gonzo was like uh, 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 Emperor's New Clothes, and there's a lot of different like it was basically fairy tales, mm-hmm. and and I ran that a lot from the library. <laughs> um, and speaking of fairy tales, I, I talk about this on the show a lot. Fairy tale theater, Shelley Duvall, mm-hmm. ran that so many times in the library to a point where like only specific, I like basically it was around certain areas. Like Blockbuster had certain videos from the series, and then. Uh, um the library had certain videos so like three little pigs was at the library but hansel and gretel was at the blockbuster mm. and those were like two of my favorite did you ever watch that show yeah yeah i did okay okay because it's just a while when you look at the cast like oh billy crystal's in this yeah. one was it jeff Williams goldman was one. the big bad wolf jeff, jeff goldman was the big bad wolf it was billy crystal uh as the 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 smart pig the the pig who built his house out of bricks um uh fred willard was the ha- the the pig that uh, built his house out of wood sticks or whatever, 
and then it was the guy who plays um, Flounder in Animal House was the one who mm. built his house out of straw. Yeah, yeah, big big fan of those. Big fan of those. Yeah, it's uh, there's one that comes up every once in a while on Twitter about like it'll be like this long lost uh, Muppets adaptation of It's a Wonderful Life. Like you can't find it anywhere anymore. I was like, I have that taped off of TV at my house. At my parents' wow. house. I watched that I one. I, I used to watch that one like every year. Did not know that I existed until just now. That's a, that's a little a, a, a meme that it goes around on Twitter that like it was released in like 2002 or maybe even 2000, Christmas of 2001. But anyway, with the way uh-huh. that they had filmed it, there's, you know, Kermit wishes he, isn't, he had never been born. And then there's like a shot uh-huh. of New York and you can see, see the Twin Towers and the joke is like if Kermit hadn't been born 9-11 wouldn't have happened <laughs> wow and so there's like a screenshot of that has circulated but yeah it was um david arquette was his guardian angel and uh joan cusack was was potter uh, <laughs> it's it's a wonderful i'm gonna have to try and rip it off the vhs taped off of television at my parents house and put it online yeah. i'll be a hero it's probably somewhere. Oh, okay. I'm re- I remember this cover, but I never watched this. Oh, this is wild. Yeah. Matthew Lillard, William H. Whoopi Goldberg. It was like the first thing they did when NBC bought the rights to the Muppets mm-hmm. uh, in the like early 2000s. Um, yeah. It, a lot of people don't know what to do with the Muppets as we're, as we're kind of finding out a little bit with the uh, currently. I feel like a lot. I think that's happening a lot with a lot of big brands. They don't really know what to do with their like legacy, mm-hmm. like or, or big companies, their legacy brands. We're seeing it now with like with with uh, Looney Tunes with Warner Brothers. Yeah, we're like we don't really know. And it's also a little bit how the audience is nowadays. Like, how do you adapt? I think I think people want it, but I think companies are trying to figure out a way to, how to change it up to make it modern. But I feel like people just want to see it like how it was before. Yeah. Again, like it's almost the like there's multiple TV channels that have made decades of careers off of showing previously made things that people just want to watch over again. Wanna watch over again. Because <laughs> that's what I'm saying with with the with, uh, with the Muppets Lurie thing is like everyone's talking about, hey, can't we get like serious actors doing like legitimate performances in a Muppet movie? I'm talking about Michael Caine and Muppets, uh Christmas Carol. And that's what everyone's discussing. Like, why can't we get more like this again? Like, this is what you do with the Muppets. Do it with literary adaptations. Get, like, a big actor in it. You still got to give Jason Siegel props, man. I love that Muppets oh, movie. He was popping around a little bit on my TikTok. He was, like, he did a, a show in, in L.A. of, like, the Dracula or the mm. the, the, the musical from Fraser Marshall at a place. And then he popped up at, like, a wrestling event, like, somewhere, <laughs> like, in the crowd, like, yelling and getting involved. And, like, Jason Siegel's a wrestling fan. This is great. Anyway, but speaking of Muppet Christmas Carol, we'll dive into our topic today with, with Christmas movie. Christmas movies in New York. But mm-hmm. first off, I'm Brand Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And this is the Cinenation Podcast. And as I said, we've been talking about New York Christmas movies. And we talked about Elf last week. So, Thomas, what... A, what we're kind of talking about because we're trying to kind of establish like it is a genre, but not a most not a dis, really a, a discussed genre. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something what is it? there's something we said we've said a few times, every, you know, every December we try and cover Christmas stuff. And what we've come back to critically looking at Christmas movies is that almost every Christmas movie is an adaptation of Christmas Carol in some way. <laughs> um 
there's always like a Scrooge character that needs to learn the meaning of Christmas in some way. Yeah. Um, and I think what we talked about last week with Elf and, and what we think we're going to continue to see is that there's something about New York that that like amplifies the Scroogeiness of it all. You know, it's it's like it's like Ghostbusters 2, uh, you know, <laughs> the, New York's the, just kind of ru- full of rude people. It's <laughs> <laughs> the, the spirit of New York is is yeah. being brusque and being being in a hurry and, and being a little self-centered and not having time for anybody else or for Christmas or, being, you know, it's business. It's Wall Street. It's it's you know, there's a reason that there, there was a reason at the time that the Christmas Carol was set in London. And there's a reason that Scrooge works so well on like, you know, not Wall Street, but but, you know, in media and TV in yeah. New York. Well, yeah, um, Scrooge. Yeah, yeah. And uh so yeah there's there's something about new york that kind of amplifies we've we've said it before in christmas months as it's always about like the spirit of christmas the battle for like someone's soul yeah in in the spirit of christmas and and we said with elf last week it was almost like the entire city of new york it's like buddy yeah. out to save this this whole city including his father but but you know yeah. throughout the movie he also kind of brings christmas to the spirit of everybody it's, it's yeah. just that it happens a little bit faster with his brother or with jovi or yeah. um and then it's da- it's his dad and ultimately the city that that he has to win over in the end but but yeah there's this idea that like new york looks great at christmas and it yeah. obviously goes all in on the aesthetics of christmas and on the commercialism of christmas but a lot of these movies are going to be like can can we all, you know, all of this, the feel of Christmas is in New York, but can we bring the spirit of Christmas to New York? Yeah. And I think too, with the image of New York, it's an interesting like symbol for America. It really stands in. And I'm and, and looking at this, this one, this movie today specifically and kind of the beginnings of the Christmas genre, because I always discuss Christmas, the Christmas genre really pops up during World War II. Mm-hmm. And you talk about and Christmas Carol was kind of the basis of a lot of those early versions, but it's about like finding your heart on Christmas a lot of the time. And a, most of these movies were again and, and like trying to create a more optimistic version, uh, or optimistic pr- perspective of the world where you'll see this kind of today with the characters and it happened on Fifth Avenue with kind of these veterans who are coming over from the war. Um, but I think with New York too, it's assembling. Early on, a lot of times you're an immigrant, you're coming in through New York City. It's a it's a image of America, Statue of Liberty, Empire State Building. Um, even during World War II, as we'll talk about a little bit today, I think um, it was again the harbor where most where millions of soldiers left to go to war, mm-hmm. and also where they came back from war. So it's kind of seen as the symbol of America and of home, uh, but it's in the mix. It's in the mix of all these businesses and consumerism and commercialism and greed and corruption and kind of how these two things these two kind of elements of good evil uh corrupted and and are corruptible and incorruptible um go together and it's kind of just a vision of like almost the the dream city of america in a way where i know a lot of people when i was in high school when uh we, we we went to new york on a field trip but also like when i had like people from like uh, overseas that were like part of our sister cities where like they're like kind of foreign exchange student programs. They would always go to New York as well because mm-hmm. it was kind of seen as like the image of America where it's this uh, melting pot of all these different things. Um, mm-hmm. 
And so putting Christmas there, as you're saying, it's it's like America, like a microcosm of America in a, in a way. Yeah. Um, with everything being together. Um, it just it's it, yeah. So it's it's very interesting of how New York plays a part in a lot of these early Christmas movies specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads us, I guess, to what we're talking about today. So, Thomas, what are we talking about today? Uh, today we were talking about It Happened on Fifth Avenue, which is a uh, 1947 film. Mm-hmm. Uh, a s- quick summary is it's about a vagabond with a heart of gold who spends every winter living in the New York mansions, abandoned by the wealthy elite who fly south for the winter. And he takes in a house full of people who are seeking shelter for the holidays, including the wealthy homeowners in disguise. Mm-hmm. The cast includes a lot of names our listeners are probably not going to know, but here we go. We're going <laughs> to shout them out. Uh, Victor Moore, Charles mm-hmm. Ruggles, Gail Storm. Love that one. Uh, Don yeah. DeFore and Anne Harding. Mm-hmm. And it was directed and produced by Roy Del Ruth, written by Everett Freeman, Vic Knight and Herbert Clyde Lewis and shot by Henry Sharp. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of names people probably haven't heard of. Yeah. Um. Uh, we've talked about you weren't on this episode, but Don DeFore we talked about one time on a, on a movie called Too Late for Tears. Hunter and I talked about during our first like Noir November month, uh, and it was kind of like a B movie Noir, really good with Elizabeth Scott. That's worth checking out. But yeah, a lot of these are kind of lesser known character actors. Yeah, that that worked for most of them worked for a while actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's currently not streaming anywhere as we're recording this <laughs> it usually is on max though every year which is yeah we'll, it's we'll on, talk it's, about it's it. I'm, I'm i'm not okay. sure where it is this year but it being and we'll, we'll we can get into initial thoughts it being on turner classic movies every year is a huge part of its legacy yes. that we'll that we'll get into but um that's where i was introduced to it so turner classic movies i think does a great job of programming kind of lesser seen mm-hmm. Christmas movies every year. It's stuff you're not going to find, you know, everybody else is going to have it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Everybody else is yeah. going to have white Christmas. Uh, so Turner really tries to kind of program things that are very good and, and more seeing, but, but that you're not going to find elsewhere. That, that is where yeah. I came across uh, Christmas in Connecticut, which has become yeah. another favorite of mine that I kind of try and revisit every year. But um, this is one I put on a few years back. Just, uh, just, you know, had Turner Classic. Just, I just kind of leave Turner Classic movies on yeah. in the week leading up to Christmas, and then sat down and watched this one, and, and found it very charming. And and at the time was kind of like, wow, I wonder why I've never heard of this movie, and and didn't didn't look any further into it until today. <laughs> so we do have a, a kind of interesting story about the legacy of this one. But yeah, um, yeah we'll get into it. So how about how about you? What's your what was your Simil- intro to this one? Similar thing. It was I watched it on TCM a few years ago when I was really getting like DVR and everything on TCM. And I do find it interesting how, even though TCM is like, this is uh, Max has to figure out with TCM because uh, even though TCM is on cable, it has a, it has great programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still has a loyal following of people finding stuff on there. And it happened on fifth Avenue was one. And that one was holiday affair with Robert Mitchum and Janet Lee mm-hmm. that I, every year, that one more so than it happened on Fifth Avenue, actually. Every year I see more and more people watching it and seeing it every year. I think I think maybe why it happened on, happened on Fifth Avenue hasn't played, hasn't garnered as big a reputation as, say, Holiday Affair these past few years is because there's lesser known stars in the in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, a, it, like I say, it is a really good film, as we'll talk about today. 
um, and kind of capturing those early Christmas spirits uh, and, and Christmas films. Um, but yeah, I, I, I've, I've watched it. I, I watched a few years ago, but I'm seeing it more and more get that kind of uh, play on TCM. But yeah, currently we I rented it off Amazon Prime because that was the best way to find it. I think Warner Archive did do a Blu-ray of it, mm-hmm. um, but I couldn't it couldn't get here in time before mm-hmm. I could before we did the episode. Um, but there um, is a Blu-ray of it somewhere. Quick shout out: the other one I've I've picked up off of Turner Classic Movies that I really enjoy is the uh, the Man Who Came to Dinner with Monty I was about Woolley. To say, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that one's that really fun. Being played a lot. Yeah. Um, Chris Kine- one I really love too is Remember the Night with Barbara Stanwyck and mm-hmm. Fred McMurray, uh, which I think was written by Preston Sturgis. We talked about it briefly uh, um, during our Preston Sturgis episode. Yeah, it was it was I think it was one of his last movies he wrote before starting his directing career. Um, yeah, those are some good ones that keep popping up now every year. So if you have TCM, uh, check it out and and look at stuff. I know I just got YouTube TV, so you can you can look at you have TCM on there, so you can go through that as well. Um, and TCM actually has a has a decent app where like all mm-hmm. the stuff that's kind of on TCM is on their app. Yeah. So I, yeah, I wish just Max could figure out what to do. They used to have a TCM tab and then they got rid of it. They have TCM's tab still. They they do. Not as of like a month ago. I, I, I it was yesterday it was, but oh, it's okay. like a lot of times it's buried. Is, is like, it used to be you could go over to the side and it would be one of the like, oh, yeah. categories no, you could go to. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's not on the Okay, it's you not on the side. You can't go to like more. a Turner Classic okay. Movies page. Right. Yeah. yeah, you have to you have to go down and it's in like the main area. You have to kind of go over like five. It actually has moved up a little bit. You used to put like <laughs> six or seven down. That's probably it's not tailored to you. Probably is. It probably is. Someone's like, else, like I've never seen the TCM. It's like next to HGTV. That's mm-hmm. like where it's at, which I never watch HGTV on Max and I never will probably um, <laughs> at a protest. So there you go. Uh, well, to get into how this movie got made, uh, I like to think of it happened on Fifth Avenue as a as a major sliding doors moment for one particular filmmaker who is Frank Capra. Uh for anyone who's not familiar with sliding doors it's not that great of a movie but one that has kind of worked its way into uh daily rhetoric is it's a Gwyneth Paltrow movie but it's just kind of about how yeah you can see these kind of small decisions that make very big impacts in your life but let's talk about Frank Capra and uh it happened on Mm -hmm. Fifth Avenue okay the script for uh was originally titled the Fifth Avenue Story and it was acquired by Capra's Liberty Films in 1945. It had everything that Frank Capra was looking for in a post-World War II film. Brave, handsome veterans returning home from war, old men with hearts of gold, and an anti-capitalist sentiment that still ended in a message of hope for America. This is, this is tailored for Frank, Frank Capra. Yep. So the Fifth Avenue story was announced uh, to the trade magazines as Frank Capra's next movie with the title of the script oh. even being changed to It Happened on Fifth Avenue to harken back to Capra's 1934 hit It Happened One Night. Mm-hmm. Not long into pre-production on It Happened on Fifth Avenue, however, Capra's eye was caught by a different script, one titled The Greatest Gift that mm-hmm. would eventually become It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. And he abandoned Fifth Avenue with Liberty Films putting the project into turnaround. Wow. I never knew that prominent studio director and friend of Frank Capra, Roy Del Ruth had had his eye on the project. And when Capra set it aside, Del Ruth grabbed up the film. 
Uh, Del Ruth was a very successful studio musical director. In the 1930s, he was the second highest pil- paid filmmaker in Hollywood. He made uh, many of the Broadway wow. melody movies. He made Ziegfeld's Follies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dewberry was a lady. And he even made the uh, first film adaptation of The Maltese Falcon. Yeah. So he grabbed up the rights to the film and shopped it around some of the smaller studios in town. Uh, there was an area called uh, Poverty Row, which were the the mm-hmm. film studios that weren't the major studios at the time. Yep. And on Poverty Row, he caught the interest of Monogram Pictures. Monogram was known as a very low budget studio at the time, but they were looking to set up a separate division to break into higher budget, more prominent films. The directive from Monogram Studio President was, he said, Monogram makes B movies, but I want a division to make B plus movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most most of the pro- Poverty Row stuff, a lot of them like made crime movies and like yeah. er- early noir films. Yeah. A lot yeah. of time. Che- cheap and easy movies. Yeah, exactly. Monogram was mostly mostly noir films. Yeah. Uh, but they saw a major opportunity to launch their new division with this project that already had free word of mouth in the trades because Frank Capra had been attached <laughs> wow. to it. So they used this film as an opportunity to launch their new division, which they named Allied Artists. So for a little bit of reference, the average film production in 1946, when this film was greenlit at Allied Artists, cost around eight hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. The average monogram pictures film at the time was $90,000, but they greenlit. <laughs> it happened on fifth Avenue for a hundred million dollars, a hundred million or, yeah. or, or oh, sorry, $1 million. <laughs> one million. I was like, Whoa, what? Uh, so they were like, yeah, we're going, they had barely broken a hundred thousand before. And they were like, let's mm-hmm. do it. 1 million. Let's go. All in baby. Yeah. <laughs> Allied artists. We're going for it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> One problem that Allied Artists was facing, though, was this was still the era of contracted cast. So they didn't really have any contract actors at Monogram. Mm -hmm. You know, they wanted a big Hollywood movie, but they didn't really have big Hollywood names. So they tried to figure out the best way to attract an audience with casting. One of the first announced cast members was Anne Harding, who was a former MGM contract actor who had been one of their leading ingenues in the 1930s. Uh she unfortunately got quote unquote too old to be an ingenue in the in the forties. Uh, it's a story we've come across many times in yeah. classic in golden age Hollywood, and so she really didn't work at all in the forties. But she still, you know, had an she was still a name. She had been a star yeah. in the thirties. Uh, so she was the first published cast member of the film, and she was touted, you know, in every article that's about, you know, the production of this, or Anne Harding's in it, Anne Harding's in it, mm-hmm. uh, despite the fact that she doesn't appear until about an hour into the movie. In the movie. <laughs> yeah. The next announced cast member was Victor Moore, who was an established Broadway actor who had been discovered on stage by Cecil B. DeMille and brought him out to Hollywood. He actually cast him in three movies in a row. We brought him out to Hollywood. So he had continued primarily on stage, but he was he was a fairly prominent character actor. He had appearances in films such as Swing Time and Make Way to, for Tomorrow. Yeah. And he had recently appeared in Ziegfeld's Follies for Del Ruth uh, when Del Ruth decided to cast him in the lead role of Aloysius T. McKeever. Mm-hmm. And quick shout out to Make Way for Tomorrow. Have you seen Make Way for Tomorrow? I have not. No. Great film. It's mm. like I, I tell you this. Uh, Orson Welles said that it, the it's a movie that'll make a stone cry because <laughs> it's so emotional, and it is. It's 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 a beautiful film. It's basically about 
Victor Moore is one of the lead characters, and it's uh, Balula Bondi, who is the who's Ma Bailey, and it's Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're an elderly couple, and they're getting older, and they can't live. I think they've lost their jobs, and they can't live in the their house gets foreclosed on, and the their their kids have to take them in, but none of the kids want to take them both in. So they basically separate their parents. <laughs> And split them up because they don't want to, have to take care of the each of them together. But kind of the the as it gets to like the fi- the final third act, they reunite and it's just so beautiful. Like it's just so beautiful. Mm. Like of them, it, yeah. It's 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 a great film. Liam uh, McCreary who made uh like Awful Truth and uh, Affair to Remember, Duck Soup. He, he's I think it's like Awful Truth won some awards. He was like I think you gave us the wrong movie. Because he made it the same year as Make Way for Tomorrow. He's like, I think that's the movie you should be awarding, <laughs> not this one. But yeah, it's a great film. And Victor Moore is amazing in it. Nice. Uh, another name announced for the cast was Gail Storm, who was one of Monogram's only musical stars. Uh, mm-hmm. Like we were saying with Poverty Row, Monogram primarily made crime films, which was you know the cheapest genre you can make at the time. But they had made a few musicals in the 1940s, and most of them starred young Gail Storm. So she was brought in supposedly for her musical talents, which we'll talk about in On Set Life. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, so then the film began shooting on August 5th of 1946, aiming for a Christmas release in 1946. <laughs> well, I already know that did not happen. So I'm intrigued to see what <laughs> happens said there. said release year, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that, but let's get into some favorite yeah. scenes in the meantime. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, I love Don DeFore's intro in his, as his apartment mm-hmm. when they're like five. I mean, also Victor Morris, but I, I really love Don DeFore because uh, it, it it's the they're basically evicting him, evicting everyone in this apartment. He's like, I'm like basically trying to squat and like you won't like you'll have if you're gonna build eighty stories up, you're building me up with it mm-hmm. is what I think he says. Um, and it's just a fun little intro for that character. Mm-hmm. Um. And say a Victor Moore, where he's just kind of the the whistling like hobo is what he is, like coming down the street in front of a not a green screen, but in front of a, a, a projection um, um, screen projection of New York. And then like how he climbs in the like the 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 back or goes to the back uh, wall or kind of fence and then like cl- cr- climbs down like the sewer. To get I think that's the, the so so I I was watching it this time. I think the um the little grate that he goes down, it says coal on it. So I think that okay. was for delivering coal to like the boiler room or something. It was wow. like a little chute that you could come in and like drop coal down into the boiler room. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the things we don't have anymore. <laughs> well, um, this is why, because someone could just hop right into your house. Apparently. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I love, I love kind of, and then the whole, like kind of how they all get together, like at the mansion. Um, yeah i think i think that intro scene for him i think that is monogram saying look at look at this because they have that you know they they set up in that huge set and he yeah. goes and turns on every light and there's these chandeliers it takes a down. while yeah, it takes and a while like, look at us yeah you didn't think we could do this did you look at the set we built <laughs> look how massive this because i was watching i was like this is taking a long time <laughs> Just going to every room, turning on every light, getting a new clothes, getting clothes, and it's 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 a big it's a big set. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and then you have Dan DeFore coming in where he, where he meets him, 
Um, and then and then Trudy Gail Storm, because how she comes in, basically she she comes in. I think he, she's squatting as well. Mm-hmm. And she comes in to grab some clothes for a job interview, yes. and they think because unbeknownst to them, she is the daughter of the the homeowner. Um, yeah. But yeah, they're like, I, 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 you don't take, you know, we, we live here, but we don't take anything, you know, kind of leave from them. Le- yeah. Yeah. Leave no sign that leave no trace that we've been here and you can't take that mink coat you're trying to walk out with. And yeah. so then she just kind of plays along and ends up living with them, <laughs> living with them. And, and 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 what's interesting with this whole entire thing is that they all kind of develop this like close knit community mm-hmm. in this mansion. Um because well, I, I love a scene right after that when they're all kind of on the three: Jim, Trudy, and McKeever. Or Victor Moore plays McKeever. Donna Ford plays Jim. Uh, Gelsman plays Trudy. Where they're all at the house, and the uh, the Gates Patrol shows up, mm-hmm. and they're like, "He's like, we got we got hide." And she's like, "You just all, every night." He's like, "You get used to it." <laughs> Ten p.m. They're a little early this or t- tonight, um, but you get used to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Victor Moore is a very warm character throughout the movie yeah um he's great he's great he, he you know he's he's this he's he always kind of puts up this like oh no we can't take any more people in but then he, he always does and yeah. you know he has this he's he's this guy he's very set in his ways he has a system he's done this for years and he acts very like put upon when he brings these people in but he still brings them in and he still cares yeah. for them and tries to you know set up a stable living situation for them all you know it's like yeah we're squatting, but we're not going to live like squatters. Like we're, you yeah. know, we're going to have rules. We're, we're going to be, <laughs> we're going to keep the men and the women separate unless they're married. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. And, and then, yeah, and they bring in the, the basically the, the veterans and their families come in and it becomes this kind of close knit community. And I love kind of the splitting up is that when they're, when they're playing pool, the men are, and they're talking about like coming back from the war and not be able to get jobs. It's, it feels very relevant. Days like everyone's wanting experience, and I don't match the experience they're mm-hmm. wanting for these jobs. And it's like yeah, there's jobs out there, but apparently, you, like we're no one's ideal for it. It's like you almost have to have the job, have a job yeah. like this to get the job. And I was like, that's never same. changed. <laughs> that's never changed. Entry level job, two years of experience needed. Experience <laughs> needed, yeah. Um, and then I love when McKeever's like, he's like, yeah, I gave up trying to make money. It could, it, me trying didn't help match my expensive taste. So I just started like <laughs> doing this instead. So it had to work. Um, yeah. What's another scene that you like? Yeah. I just think, I think that kind of the, the subplot of, you know, these, these vets coming home and, and not having a place for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does. It feels very Capra. You can see why Capra yeah. would have been drawn to it, but but it also yeah. feels so relevant to the time of this idea of like, you know, there's no place for us to live. But what about those barracks? Like, you know, it's it's yeah. it's, it's, it's there's a little bit of like White Christmas in there too. It's like, I I wrote I wrote down White Christmas because it has that feeling of like, let's get the band back together. Let's let's do a job together. Let's like do all these different things to make it better for mm-hmm. for veterans. Um, Money will go to them. We'll give them the place to, li- to live. Um, but it shows like with uh, very early on, like the 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 class system and the class like mm-hmm. differences with they're staying in this. O'Connor is the character. Mike O'Connor 
the second richest man in the world <laughs> is what they're saying. And they're living in his mansion. And then he's off to Virginia for the other half of the year to, to be there during the winter, to be in the South. The winter. Snowbirds in Virginia. Go a little yeah, bit go, further go, South. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got to go to Florida. I would say Georgia, South Carolina. That's where you want to be at. Yeah. Not, not Virginia just feels too North. It's like you, you didn't still got to be far. cold. So I was in cold. Virginia like two weeks ago. It was cold. Yeah. Yeah, go to Florida. Like, go down to like uh, 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 Mar-a-Lago, you know, Mar-a-Lago or whatever. Like, that's that's where you yeah. should go. Um, but and then, but it was like a, her, his wife or ex-wife, Mary. She's down at uh, Palm Beach. Palm Beach, yeah, yeah, yeah. He should be going down there. You can't Instead. go down there. He's not talking to his. He's not that's talking not to his wife. Separated. Separated. Um, no, I. And then after that, I love the how I'd say I, I wrote down the the gun kiss bit. <laughs> when 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 uh when trudy and jim when she's like why well, don't i have to hold a gun and and i was just like and and basically for those to describe the scene for those that haven't seen it um is that she's like holding the gun she's like oh let me teach you how this is how he held it in the army and it becomes almost like the old bowling trick that you see in certain mm. movies like, let me show you how to bowl and so it's like wraps his arms around her trying to hold the gun they get close they get closer the tension builds and then they kiss. And the thing is, they're holding the gun as they're doing this. And he's just like, and just squeeze tighter and tighter. And then the gun goes off. Mm-hmm. And I think Victor Moore like says like something at one point, good shot or something like in the distance. Mm. Um, but just, yeah. Metaphors. Like that's metaphors. Yep. I feel like that's <laughs> we, we got, we got in under the code is what mm-hmm. it is. Um, but yeah, you have another scene because yeah, O'Connor comes in not long after this. I yeah, believe. yeah, and I I love that. So so I I just love the setup for you know it becomes this kind of comedy of manners. Um, yes, but the 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 kind of the 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 hook here once once we've got these mm-hmm. this like main trio established, uh, O'Connor comes in. He finds Trudy. He's like you you have to. She ran away from school. You have to go back to to finishing school. And she says, no, I hate it there. If you want like any relationship with me, you're going to a support me being here in New York and B come meet these wonderful squatters that are living in your <laughs> house that I love and C you have to pretend to be a squatter too, or else they're not going to like, if you love me, you're going to come do this. If you want me yeah. in your life as a daughter, you're going to come do this. Uh, which to which he agrees. So, you know, there's already yeah. a little hope for him. He, he's already, yeah. you know trying to keep a good relationship going with his daughter but but yes and it just leads to this continued these these continued comedic beats that i i every that gets me every time which is victor moore and charles ruggles playing against each other where they bring o'connor in as this homeless man they found on the street mm-hmm. and 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 mckeever takes this very like stern like you are not you don't fit in here you know th- this idea that like all these other people are like very kind-hearted and very open yeah. and 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 uh the this this rich character who is now in this place he, he's not he's not used to doing chores yeah. he's not used to yeah. sleeping in the the servants quarters and and mckeever is always like chastising him for it and he's getting like so mad and <laughs> <laughs> one way like, i'm giving him a day to get out of here mm. <laughs> yeah, and they put him in the servant's room with the dog and he's like, now, yeah. now I won't have to wake up. He barks at 7 a.m. Now I won't have to wake up with him anymore. <laughs> yeah. You can take him out. 
Uh, but when 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 she's preparing him, she's kind of running through like, how to prepare him. I love this. I don't remember what this guy says, but I'll just give the the essence of this man, the suit maker, when he's trying to get a suit. When he's like, he's like, mm-hmm. and then this happens, and this happens, and then I go to jail, and then I do that, and then I lose my house, and then I lose my family, and they're like, let me just buy the suit so you can stop talking, and I'm just like, <laughs> who is this guy? Because it's like he, he's just basically upselling, like, and if you don't buy the suit, then I lose my family, lose my job, mm-hmm. go to jail, can't pay my ta- taxes. <laughs> and then after that, you have that random shot of them, the three walking through Central Park, singing, as they, <laughs> as they, as they, as they uh. Like just it, it's so. I, I'm intrigued to see what we talk about onset life with this with her singing because when I watch it, I go, this is a musical. But they just <laughs> they just have this random interlude of these. That they're like, it's almost like we're going off to Oz and they're just singing about like what was the song they sang for that? Because there's two songs I know. There's the opening titles. Um. Well, there's more songs apparently. Um. Yeah, there's one called "That's What Christmas Means to Me." Um, yeah, I, think that's, I feel like that was the opener for some reason. Yeah, and then uh, "You're Everywhere" is another one. Mind that one, but yeah, it's they're singing, and then, but it's the it's again talk about comedy of errors. There's a lot of that later where it's like kind of weird setups of like how to play with like the 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 not knowing that that they're rich yeah and it's like oh there's that poor old man sitting over there like he's cold and it shows like o'connor covering up um but yeah and she's also led believes like oh my father's a drunkard and like beats up on me and the other 14 kids <laughs> there was the line it doesn't age well there's a line they're like he's lazy he beats up on 14 kids like, i don't think he's lazy if he's doing that <laughs> 14 kids that's a lot that's such a dark lie. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, and then, you know, like any good comedy manners, they kind of double down when it's like, you know, he's getting yeah. impatient. He's going to he's going to blow this whole thing. So then they bring in his estranged wife, yep. who she's now also going to pretend to be squatting yeah. here. And then it turns out they're they're having this romance again. I I, I you know, I love the scene when he comes in with, oh, 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 one of my favorite, I Googled, oh no, I can't even remember what it's called now, the, that dish that he's so excited oh, for. The so dish. The scene, oh, gosh. He comes in and he smells this dish and he's like, I haven't had that dish in years. And then it turns and he's out like, it's I, his, I fell in love with the woman who made that dish. Yeah, and then he goes in and he realizes that it's his wife there. And, and you know, then the, one of the other guys comes in and is like, you're not talking to this woman nice enough. She made dinner for everybody. But, um, I yeah. googled what and that Jim, dish Jim, is. Jim's like, we already have a new new cooking. You're already arguing with her. <laughs> um, it's just like it's like beefaroni. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's a, like certain a, a ground stew, beef stew yeah. that then you like cook yeah. macaroni noodles down in the in the stew liquid. Yeah, what does he call it? Because it's a, I, I was like, I've never heard of this ever before. S- slum slum gash or something. Like that. Yes, it's something like that. Let me see. It's like goulash, but slum. Slum Slum Gillian Gullian Slum Gullian yeah. is actually a, a, a thing online. Slum Gullian, yeah, a kind of Irish stew. Mm, Slum Gullian. I once fell in love with the one who made Slum Gullian. That's why that guy walked in and smelled beef stew and was like, just assume there were macaroni Memory. noodles in there. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> But yeah, and then it, and then it turns into this, you know, it, it it's been working off of this kind of tension between 
him and McKeever, and then they they int- they bring the wife in, like I said, about an hour into the movie, about halfway through, and then it turns into this kind of romance rekindling, uh, you know, uh, coming back together for them, which then eventually kind of in in rekindling his relationship with his daughter and with his wife and in meeting all these people, eventually. Uh, it becomes kind of, you know, the the redemption of the soul because, for this character. Because the movie weirdly, and this is maybe a knock on it, is that the main character's Mike. Because yeah. Mike has the biggest arc. Mm-hmm. But everyone else like it's built above like Charles Ruggles' character, everyone else is built above him. Everyone else gets a lot of screen time. But no one really no one else really has an arc in the movie. Yeah. Uh, at least not as big. Everyone else, like Jim is always like he's basically stat- stagnant. He's mm-hmm. the same. He's kind. He's nice. He's all American boy. Come back from war. Wants to believe in the American dream and start his own business and take care of people. He's fallen in love. Trudy's fallen in love with him because of those ideals. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're arc for, you know, is their their love story. Like neither yeah. of them really changed that much. She she also like she comes in and she's like immediately down with it you know it, yeah, we, yeah, we don't yeah. have her ever being so yeah like, my oh, father well, was... my father my father sucks let's stay here let's yeah it. yeah we don't ever have her being like oh well i was raised this way she's like automatically down yeah, for... <laughs> yeah anything like and their romance there's really no conflict between them exactly it's it's mike that comes in and puts conflict within mm-hmm. it oh man uh, i love I do, I do love this scene when when they bring him in and he thinks that she's like already had a baby baby yes <laughs> he's just like daughter and then it's like she's sitting there taking care he's like oh god yeah i'm, I'm i i agree with the marriage oh we're not married what do you mean you're not married you have a baby he's and it goes on for several scenes where he mm-hmm. thinks that she's now with a with a child he's like oh my god she's so young i didn't know <laughs> she did <laughs> um but yeah, and, and then so then after that we have I love the scene at the dinner table when McKeever's just like insulting like O'Connor who loved lived here like I hear he's one of the worst people in the world mm-hmm. like he's a he's a he's a Scrooge he's uh he's cheap he's this he's rude to people blah, blah, blah. and like Mary's just like ha laughing <laughs> at him and then and then he's like well now his wife i've heard she's pretty bad too <laughs> and then, and then my, mike mike starts like choking on his food he's like okay here we go and then he's like yeah she she's gone down to to florida can't stay with her husband like what's up with that <laughs> like, let's talk about something else let's not talk about this <laughs> um yeah but i really like one i mean one of the highlights for me and, and you know the reason we're talking about it here is the is the christmas scene i think the yeah it's it's really fun you've got everybody kind of together for christmas and and you haven't had like a big like redemption moment for mike yet but it, it's you know he's he's kind of fallen back in love with his wife at this point they're they're i think i think at this they've already said that they're gonna get married yeah 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 mary or uh, trudy and jim no, no, Mary, Mike, and Mary have like. Oh, uh, Mike and Mary. To, yeah, they're to, you know, Mary. Yeah. There, there's the scene. There's the scene where McKeever yeah. is like, "You guys can share this room now because, like, yeah. I trust that you're truly in love." Yeah. Um, and then you have this Christmas scene, and the 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 cops come in, and the the one cop is hilarious. I just love the performance from him in, in that scene. He's. Um, I think that's the guy who's in a um uh the Thin Man. 
Oh, I feel really? Like he's in the Thin Man. I think that one guy's like. But they're like, yeah, you know, we're. He's like, you guys got to keep it down. He's like, oh, we're in here celebrating. Uh, these two are getting married. He's like, oh, I've been married, you know, twenty five years myself. And they're like, well, where's your wife? It's Christmas. He's like, she's she's at home. You know, she never complains. She yeah. waits for me to come back from work. She never complains. And they're like, just invite her over here for Christmas. And he's like, I will. I will. <laughs> yeah, he was in the Thin Man. He was Morelli. who was like, I think he's the guy who comes in on uh, Nick and Nora. Oh, yeah. yeah. In the bedroom with the gun. Mm. Let me tell you, see, like, yeah, he's he's that guy. Nice. He was yeah, around he's, for he's a while. Yeah. Um, but uh. Yeah, it's it, that you know that's kind of the moment we 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 later get our kind of big you know when Mike reveals himself and does this kind of ultimate kindness. But this is this feels like the first like okay he's changed in that he you know defends that he could he could have stood up right then and said you know I'm Michael Connell I want all these people out of my house yeah, uh, yeah. but he kind of backs them up and 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 keeps it going there. Yeah, and speaking of backing up before that, it's like we're talking about when when McKeever's like, "Oh no, like you can share this room," but he's he's like, "It's so nice. It, we're in a place where the the people who live here have fallen out of love, but we're seeing people fall in love with, especially at your age." And you're like, and they're like, "He's like, no, I'm not." And they're like, "No, no, you you are. You're you're falling you're you're falling in love with this woman." And then you realize, oh, like they, it's it's again when you strip away the the materialism of it all, it's that's when like they rediscover who they who they're true selves are mm-hmm. um and you get a lot and that's the thing mike uh, mike learns a lot from people around him like there's the moment when so basically it re- it's like revealed that uh as jim and his his veteran friends who lived there have been trying to get the barracks they've been trying to bid on the location to buy so they can convert it and what they find out or that what they're told later is that um o'connor is the one also bidding it up not realizing they're in this bidding war and then finally O'Connor just like buys it outright and beats them because he has more money. And it's the moment when they all find out and they're all just like broken. And Mike is uh talking with McKeever and McKeever's like, I think it's my last year here. I think like after all this, like I it's it, the, like the house is like sad now mm-hmm. after with all these memories of, of them lo- kind of losing their American dream, like the dream they had is dead because of this man that yeah. I'm living in his house. It's not even, it's not even fun to like play act at being rich now yeah. because the rich are just so morally bankrupt that yes. I, 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 I just don't even want to do this anymore. I'll be here. He's like, he, and, 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 and Mike's like, no, like, uh, he's like, I'm going to live at this other place house. No, like they're there. It's colder there. It's this. Cause he's like, he's now like almost wanting McKeever to like, yeah, keep doing this he's like oh no you like, you love it here and he's just like ha- and this is what mckeever says a house is only what it's a cop or occupants make it basically saying if the person who lives here is like morally corrupt and a, a bad person that becomes part of the house mm-hmm. and with the way it's been previously is they've all been happy and happy-go-lucky working all together making everything work and there's love in the house and now there's no longer love because they like it's basically killed their dream and this man is now just like living in it mm-hmm. and and that's what cha- that's kind of where like the big change begins to happen uh for mike and then he goes off and throws a a tomato at his business partner at the <laughs> protest um, which is yeah great. and then i i love the scene when he kind of reveals himself to the veterans because they, there's yeah. been this kind of running through line where they'll catch him on the phone 
trying to make business deals and they'll be like no, I, think oh, come on, mike. I think he's insane <laughs> you're, yeah sure mike yeah you're making big big moves on wall street big okay deals, big, you're a big big money mover mike big so money I just mover. Love they come in the office and find him behind the desk and they're like oh shit this crazy guy's here again we gotta we gotta like stash him somewhere <laughs> oh god work o'connor gets here they just lock him in the closet <laughs> And they're like, what's what's that? Oh, just the pipes, you know, just the pipes banging or whatever. Oh, man, it's great. Um, and yeah, and then you have kind of the final end. I mean, I, I mean, if you haven't watched it have, happen for that, we've kind of gone everything to it. But I love at the end, again, when they kind of say their goodbyes and, and O'Connor's like, there are richer men than I. Yeah, yeah. Um, when he sees McKeever, who's just this happy-go-lucky, now going back, now going to Virginia to, to, to O'Connor's place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great little final joke. Is like they're like, "Oh, where do you go now?" He's like, "Well, now I go to Virginia." And they I mean, realize really he's ni- been squatting really in both nice houses. In <laughs> but uh, it's like board, board up that fence. Next year, he's gonna be walking to the front door. Oh, great line! It's the yeah. the the. There's richer men than I is also a great line too because yeah. they, you know the the whole movie. There's been this joke about him being the second richest man. Second richest so, man. So there is like there's always gonna be someone richer, but then there's always also gonna be someone you know richer in spirit yeah being and being rich is not all yeah, again does not come from wealth it's again and that's again talking about capra that's the whole key of of it's a wonderful life is that potter is the richest man in the city but in the end it's george that is the richer richer because of his family and friends um and the people he's affected uh throughout his life it, it is interesting kind of when hearing capra was into this I can see as I can see him being into it. It's just not as dark as he probably wanted it to be because mm. it's wonderful life. which is a much darker movie. Yeah. And I think it captures the, the darkness of world war two more and the aftermath of it. This is more of like, there's not as a lot, a lot of gray in this yeah. movie. This one's, this one's a lot closer to you can't take it with you, which was he had done before. Yeah. Before world I was going to say, and- it feels more like pre-war Capra yeah. than post-war Capra. You know, I don't think I'll be coming back here next winter. Why? What's wrong with this place? Since Jim and the boys lost that property, all the laughter and happiness is gone. This place seems like a morgue. You know, I think I'll try the Guggenhof Mansion next season. The Guggenhof Mansion? Oh, that place doesn't compare with this. Everybody knows that the Guggenhof place has bad plumbing. And besides, they don't have air conditioning. And that's something to be considered. Mike, a house, any house, is only what its occupants make it. Ah, this place doesn't seem the same. A little bit of onset life. We don't have a lot. There's not there's not a lot of documentation for this movie, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like you said, there, there is, there is like an attempt to make this movie a musical, which was, yes. uh, on, on part by allied, you know, they wanted to musicals were making money. They also had Del Ruth attached to the movie who was kind of known for musicals. So they did commission a few songs to be written for the film, which was mm-hmm. also at the time a way to make money off of a movie is to sell, uh, sell singles off of the, um, off of the soundtrack. So nothing's changed. Uh, so we don't have much on set life. The, really, the only thing I came away with was this anecdote from Gail Storm's memoirs. Uh, so these songs had been written for the movie and they were given to Storm before 
films the movie started filming so she had been rehearsing them in lead up uh to production most of the songs kind of go to her character she's got this kind of side story where she works in a tin pan alley store kind of selling music which is that's a shop around the corner is also kind of what they do right well they sell instruments but they they have to be able to like play them yeah it's kind of it's kind of retail stuff where they they also like like just knickknacks um yeah tin pan alley is like doesn't the Tiffany Alley is it was an area where people just wrote a lot, a lot of songs where a lot a lot of music was coming from Irving Berlin who did White Christmas was kind of thing from the the Tiffany Alley mm-hmm. area they where would, it was they would like, sell like, the sheet music yeah. and you could kind of walk up and be like well what does this one sound like and the the salesperson yeah. would have to be able to like sit down and play it and sing it for you yeah yeah so very, she very early, early pop music basically yeah so she had been prepping to perform these songs and she, when she got to set del ruth told her that she would be lip syncing and not not to her own playback he had arranged playback from somebody else no no this is a quote from storm she says i couldn't believe it i thought that maybe the director didn't know i'd been singing and dancing in films and that if, if i just spoke to him he'd let me do my own numbers well i asked him and he said no i asked him to look back at some of my musicals and he said no I asked him if I could sing for him, and he said no. His theory was that if you were a dancer, you didn't sing. If you were a singer, you didn't dance. And if you were an actor, you didn't sing or dance. Or it dance. was humiliating. Wow. So that so I don't know if you saw this going with this about dubbing because it's been like I feel like this has been like a big issue, especially at this point in time from this period on to like the in the fifties and sixties, where like actors would do a movie. And they'd be dubbed without being told about it. Like mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn's kind of famous with My Fair Lady. But the one that's been popping up late is Sound of Music with Christopher Plummer. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I How just saw that. Was The they, audio was released. The, the audio was released. And it sounds so much better, I think. Mm-hmm. Like it sounds more realistic. Exactly. And, but that was like yeah. that was like what they didn't want. Natalie Wood want. as well, right? Um, yep. In, in West Side Story. Yeah, it was like they. Yep. they that's, that's the kind of stuff I like. It's like the real sound, yeah. If you like, because we talked about this on West Side Story episode, is that when you listen to Natalie Wood's voice comes at the very end, uh, at the ending song when she sings, and it's a little more shakier. But the moment I go, oh, I like that more because it feels more real. Because the acting is in the song. The acting is in the song. That's, yeah. and that's the thing they they couldn't comprehend is that they were looking at how do we sell the song, not how do we sell the performance. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish I had a little bit more on set life because <laughs> uh, the film was mysteriously came in as over budget and behind schedule. Wow. Uh, there's not really any evidence as to what happened on the film, but I'd imagine it's something as mundane as the fact that the producers at Monogram just didn't know how to handle a movie of this size. They'd never done yeah. it before. But the film was intended for Christmas release. It wasn't finished until late October, which they couldn't rush the post fast enough to get it out and it ended up <laughs> they, clocking in at uh 1.2 million so uh two hundred thousand dollars over the initial budget mm. so the movie did not release until easter weekend of 1947 the initial poster that was kind of run in newspapers and put up around uh to advertise the movie shows uh that allied artist was really tr- was trying very hard maybe too hard to create the facade of being a big Hollywood studio. It is a, it's just a one sheet poster. There's a tiny little title card down at the bottom that has the title of the movie and like a little picture of like the main three cast members. 
Uh, but the rest of the page is just dominated by giant names of Hollywood stars. And each one has a one word quote, which I guess is implied to be a review of the movie. It doesn't have any context. So these are, these are some of my favorite. It says Jack Benny. Excellent. Cary Grant. <laughs> immense. Al Jolson. One of the best. Orson Welles. A winner. I'm sure. I'm sure that Orson Welles said that. <laughs> This is my favorite. Bob it was Hope. More, it was more a winner question mark. Yeah. Bob Hope. Happiness loaded. <laughs> <laughs> Who reached out and, to Bob Hope and said, hey, Bob Hope, what'd you think of this movie? Man, you know what? It was just happiness loaded. Happiness loaded. Uh, oh, but then the last one is from Frank Capra and it says wonderful. So this is is where we go back to Frank Capra in our in our sliding doors uh, moment here, because the Christmas film that Frank Capra abandoned for this uh, film also famously did not come out at Christmas. Yep. It's a Wonderful Life uh, released January of 1947. Okay, so it's funny because next we're talking about Miracle on 34th Street. And spoiler alert, it also was released in 1947 yeah. and not on Christmas. Yep. And we'll talk about that next week. But yeah. So wow. It's a Wonderful Life came out January 7th, 1947. And as we said on our episode on it, you can go back and listen to it. Great yeah, episode. Years, great episode. Two years ago. Uh, it was a flop. It was a box office flop. And it, yeah. it killed his studio, right? <laughs> it killed Liberty Films. It was it was the first and last, I think, Liberty Films that Capra did because it was like it was Capra and I think a few other directors that were uh so Capra and Samuel Briskin but I feel like they had only had two films it's Wonderful Life and then State of the Union also by Capra and then and then closed pretty much immediately um but yeah I was trying to meet William Wyler and George Stevens that's what it was they were they were doing the the company with Capra in some way, but only Capra made two movies for them. Hmm. Well, it happened on Fifth Avenue, turned a small pri- profit for Allied Artists. It came in at about $1.8 million at the box office just a couple of months after It's a Wonderful Life had bombed. Yeah. Critically, however, it did very well. Bosley Crowther at the New York Times, who gave It's a Wonderful Life a Bosley. middling review yeah. for it, he called it overly sentimental. He loved it happened on Fifth Avenue. Interesting. Uh, let me let me pull up i've got a great i just want to read the the, like intro blurb for this one because i think he makes some great points on this one so here's his review from june 11th 1947 so he took it took like two months to review it uh he says a favorite hollywood pastime and its films anyhow is that of deflating stuffed shirts and melting frigid hearts the boys go for such an opportunity like a snowball goes for a silk hat And so it is not surprising to find this ancient monkey shine indulged again in the current antic it happened on Fifth Avenue. It is not surprising to find it, but it is surprising to discover it done with as much geniality and humor as is evident in this modest comedy. For Roy Del Ruth and the others who helped him in making this film apparently went about it as though they were on a new tack. They took that dog-eared story of the hard-hearted millionaire given a lesson in human relations by a kindly disposed vagabond, and they dressed it up in such trimmings as to make it look almost fresh. And they found themselves fortunately supported by a charming performance from Victor Moore. 
As a hobo who lets his winter sojourn in the empty mansion of a New York millionaire be complicated by a curious assortment of deserving but non-paying guests, Mr. Moore gives a funny imitation of a tramp living like a king. And as the granite grain gent who owns the mansion and perchance joins the guests as a tramp himself, Charlie Ruggles is equally competent in his contribution to the topsy-turvy farce. Happy to say the batch of authors have played off the two men artfully and have got some amusing social comment in the temporary reversal of their roles. In the inevitable romantic department, Gail Storm is pretty and pert as the millionaire's willful daughter who falls in love with jobless XGI, and Don DeFore is popularly noble and bright-eyed as this lad. Anne Harding is mostly sentimental as the moneybag's cast-off wife, and a gang of nondescript young people play beneficiaries of Mr. Moore's charity gratefully. Indeed, there is nothing about this picture more deserving of gratitude than Mr. Moore. Without him, or a reasonable facsimile, this movie would just be another hopeful try. Mm. I think think it's a great way to put it. It's nothing new story-wise, but... um, Yeah, it's it's charming. It's it's charming enough. Um... Bosley Crawford doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> I feel like because uh, he, he's 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 the pre Pauline Kale. Yeah, bit. yeah, for sure. He, the curmud- mostly curmudgeonly uh, critic who, when he did love something, yeah. you know, and even when he didn't like something, it was always worth reading. Um, I'm reading now. Crawther barely concealed his disdain for Joan Crawford when reviewing her films. <laughs> <laughs> but he also talks about it says, it says that he opposed censorship in movies and advocated greater social responsibility in making them. Hmm. Uh, and he praised movies like uh, Grapes of Rassus and Cain, Lost Weekend, All the King's Men, and High Noon. And he even he wrote a poor review about Psycho and then came back a year later admitting he was wrong, saying it was the one of the best films of the year. Hmm. That's where that's where Roger Ebert got it from. Yeah. There, Pauline Kale didn't didn't revert on it in a lot of her judgments. Very in fact, she, she liked to go back years later and be like, "This is why I hated this movie." So, <laughs> <laughs> some some other reviews. Uh, Jack D. Grant of the Hollywood Reporter specifically praised Allied Artists in his review, saying, "Boasting a story that has real balance, it happened on Fifth Avenue, as produced and directed by Roy Del Ruth, is an auspicious start for the recently organized Allied Artists productions." Steve Broidy, president of Monogram, took a large part in the organizing of Allied Artists, and to his support can go some of the praise for the success of this better picture, which is going on the market through Monogram's exchanges. More of the same class will distinctively raise the market standards. There is more to celebrate than there is to criticize, and it happened on Fifth Avenue. The modern fable, the screenplay by Everett Freeman tells, with additional dialogue by Vic Knight, is in a word, brilliant entertainment. There will be many who will wish that the picture were shorter than its five minutes less than two-hour running time. There will be voices raised against the corn in which the topping gags frequently indulge, but the basic worth of this yarn is consistently far superior to the carping that can be leveled against it. Yeah, I, I was I was waiting on the links to talk about what did not work because yeah that's, we're, that's, we were talking about run times back in back in 1947. Too long, baby. Too long. <laughs> Ninety minutes now. Let's do this. The Washington Post Post praised the size of the film and the work of the studio, saying they just didn't care for the Hollywood esque ad campaign featuring big stars when the film itself was a mild, pleasant little film. But we're 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 in a very weird again at this point of of how. So like how celebrity is in America, mm-hmm. like celebrities are supposed to kind of like that. They, they're they're like they they're, they believe that celebrities will have some sort of like a sway with. I feel like we always felt this way, but at this point they're using it way more. Uh, 
in how they promote things. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, that's also, you know, the, the, the weird one word quotes aside that, I mean, I'm sure that the, the logic behind that was just, you know, we don't have any names to put on this poster. So let's just make a poster this, that says Cary Grant, Bob Hope, Orson this, Welles. <laughs> this is basically, uh, Andrea Riseborough's Oscar campaign from last year. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of people that are under, well, that was a lot of her friends, but it's like people under contract being like, we need you, we need to put your name on here. To say it's a great movie, mm-hmm. but then you stop. You're like, oh my god, Cary Grant and and Al Jolson and Bob Hope are all in a movie together, and you stop and you're like, oh wait, they're not in it. But what is this movie? I'm yeah. gonna look and see. Like, yeah. yeah, just wait next week when we, when I show you the trailer of Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Okay, it's the almost the exact same of how mm-hmm. they do it. Uh, the only major bad review came from Time Magazine, which called the film Hokum with unsurprising <laughs> mass market appeal it is a it is a scathing review Hulk on em. the people of america it is like yeah this movie sucks that's no wonder people love it it's, it is it's a wild one holcomb the, I'm, pa- I'm, I'm reading a past master of creaky charm and pathos more <laughs> the movie was nominated for one oscar best oh. story which it well, lost it's a, to it's a, it's a, yeah, Miracle on 34th Street. <laughs> it, it that that's a weird award. It was a very weird award because basically how to describe best story? It's essentially like who wrote the treatment? Best idea who, for a screenplay. Best idea for a screenplay. That's exactly what it is. It's like who wrote a good treatment and outline that doesn't have a lot of dialogue. That's what it is. Like they had so many weird like like Be- there was best screenplay best story and like adapted screenplay it's like everything was like w- worded differently but yeah best story started like from the beginning of the 20s it looks like it ended in a uh, 56 so it went for a while went for a while it lost but, like, movie but basically yet, an- yet another christmas movie in 1947 who else now that year uh movies i never heard of a cage of nightingales which is basically uh look la uh Lacasia. well no that's not it but a cage of nightingales kiss of death which is good which is a kind of a noir film of that era smash up the story of a woman <laughs> okay <laughs> with uh susan hayward and uh eddie, eddie albert there you go hmm. nightclub right. singer who, who, who marries another singer and becomes an alcoholic after sacrificing her career for him so it feels like a, a stars noir version <laughs> stars born yeah <laughs> The so the movie went on to you know it did well at the box office was well reviewed nominated for an yeah. Oscar it went on to be produced twice for radio uh, before being licensed for television airings by Monogram Films in the late 1950s which is where we get back to one more intersection with Frank Capra so we've talked about it. if you'll go back and listen to our It's a yep. Wonderful Life episode kind of the reason that it's a wonderful life became a classic right is because it accidentally entered the public domain in the 1970s and then every it was free for any tv station to run it so they all started running it uh, even though it had been kind of a long lost flop at the time on the other hand allied artist which eventually outlasted monogram pictures but folded in like the early 70s sold off all of its films to warner brothers when it went down some sort of issue happened in in this sale in the rights of it happened on fifth avenue and from about the mid 80s on uh warner brothers was unable to air this on television or to release it on physical media wow 
in the early 2000s with the rise of the internet, a fan site began to organize uh, letter and email writing campaigns to Turner Classic Movies, begging them to restore It Happened on Fifth Avenue. Uh, this went on for almost 10 years, and Turner Classic Movies was able to get the rights to air the film once on Christmas in 2009 in unison with a DVD release of the film by Warner Brothers. Uh, but, you know, everybody, the online community was was thrilled. They, they made it happen. Yeah. Uh, but eventually the TV rights to the film were worked out in 2014, and it has been a staple on Turner Classic Movies since then. Yeah. And like you said, they've done a, a Blu-ray in the meantime since then. Yeah, uh, I was looking at the Blu-ray again. It's like not getting here. If I order it now, it will not get here till a month from now. <laughs> Over a month from now. So, But I think, you know, as, as we've watched kind of Frank Capra and It's a Wonderful Life like intersect with this movie, I think it's it's funny that being on TV made It's a Wonderful Life like an absolute yeah. classic. And yeah. spending 20 years nowhere... Yeah. Has, has you know doomed this movie almost and like you said it's way, kind yeah. of slowly making its way back on turner classic movies but now this year it's nowhere to be found what ha- where to go yeah. water brothers go? you work so hard you work so hard what? to get this one back yeah what are we doing here what are we, what are we doing david we're we doing sasloff um but yeah you know this this was the winner uh it, obviously miracle on 34th street did better but in in the you know, between this and and it's a wonderful life at the time this was the winner and then over the years with the tv rights it just it just lost until yeah so it's it's only been about 10 years now that this movie has been back yeah. so here's a weird stat mm-hmm. i'm looking at i've never seen this before amazon has like how many people bought this in the past month mm-hmm. so 800 people have bought the dvd in the past month for it happened on fifth avenue on amazon and then 100 people bought it the blu-ray of it in the past month no yeah. well, at least one person bought the digital the uh, two ownership of it <laughs> oh, on oh, Amazon. You, oh, oh did you buy it you actually bought it i rented it yeah i went oh it was one of those i was renting it it was like 3.99 and then it was like for nine dollars you and i was like six dollars to watch it like one other time sometime yeah I'll, I'll do it you got me with that one um especially turner classic movies doesn't bring it back yeah i don't know what's up with that i feel like they're gonna show up but i don't know why it's not streaming anywhere it's weird yeah. On the it's it's weird on the Wikipedia page. I love there's a Twitter there's a Twitter account called Depths of Wikipedia. There she's yeah. uh, the girl who runs it is also on TikTok. But um, there's they talk a lot about kind of the people who like correct Wikipedia pages. And on yeah. the on the it happened on Fifth Avenue Wikipedia page, the very last sentence of the entire article is uh, it is available to be streamed on HBO Max. I was like, somebody needs to edit this. You can't put that. That stuff changes so much. You cannot keep yeah. up with that on Wikipedia. <laughs> it, cha- it changes like every month, it feels like. Yeah. It's it also does. not HBO Max anymore. but It's yeah. not. Yeah. Let's move on to uh, to what works about it happened on Fifth Avenue. I think the cast works is like kind of the number one mm-hmm. thing. Um, I think all the, all the actors are good. Uh, I mean, one scene I didn't talk about that I, that is just so wacky. Uh, and they're great in it with Gail Storm and Don uh, Don DeLafour. Don yeah Don DeFour. Uh When they go on their date, mm-hmm. oh the and the, it, the, and the table, table the wobbling table, and the waiter is amazing. Where he like he's like okay and like folds up the paper and puts mm-hmm. it under and he's and he's and he keeps rocking. He like goes under the table and then comes out the other side. All of a sudden, that oh, no. feels like that feels like a part. You know how like. 
it's such a different movie it, it feels yeah. like you know like buster keaton's in like shop around the corner like that feels like they they needed somebody um uh to be in that oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah you know they you they, mean, they wrote that mean, they were like all right now we're gonna get some like physical person to to be in this you mean that you mean the musical version of it oh yeah yeah, yeah. what is it uh easter parade no, no, no. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that the musical in the, version? In, in the good old summertime? In the good old summertime, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Because uh, it's Garland. Is it Garland? Yeah. Is it? yeah. Yeah. Judy Garland's in it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Van that's the one that Buster Keaton's in. Yeah. Worth yeah, watching mainly Keaton, just for him. Yeah, Keaton. That was when Keaton was in his, like, he was he, he basically just uh put in the like i think it was the mgm at the time and so like they just would put him in all these different movies because they didn't know what to do with him and he basically just needed the money because he basically had 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 done a deal early on where his movies failed so he just was a, a actor for hire uh a contract player mm-hmm. but yeah i think i think the cast definitely works and you know you and i are both character actor people i think there's yeah. there's something there for like the reviews of it and and how it was kind of embraced by people when it came out, there's something about having not named actors in it, not like yeah. stars, uh, not studio stars, because it it feels a little bit more real. It feels a little bit more authentic, and you know that's why I think the one of the critics was just like, "Yeah, I like this. I don't like this campaign that they were doing, but I like this movie." Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I think that works i think kind of their approach to i think the the allied artist model specifically for this one uh kind of works this this yeah. I- idea of of we're gonna try and make a big hollywood movie but we're gonna make it with who we can afford to put in it <laughs> yeah and you can you when you kind of think that way you find very you can find very talented people i agree and i just i i like a I like a comedy of manners i like a yeah you know i'm i'm caught up in this lie and i'm trying to keep this lie going and i'm caught up in this lie and and um kind of the the comedy that derives from that i i always enjoy so yeah uh no it's fun it, it, it's it feels like with this like it could be like sitcom ideas from the early 50s mm-hmm. where it's like, like specific episodes of like some of some of the right i think two of the three writers went on to like write for sitcoms oh, after okay. this yeah yeah that checks out that checks out uh so did anything not work here i think we've already heard one from you i mean the length is the length is i i this is why i haven't like, like revisited that much is because mm. like it's two hours it's basically two hours it's, it's hour 54 the, the structure is a little strange like you said the structure is strange if the structure is strange uh it needs to be 90 minutes because <laughs> like it, like anytime something happens i'm like we're getting toward the end it's like well like the example when the cops show up on uh christmas eve or whatever yeah you think, oh, we're getting towards the end. And that goes for like 25, 30 minutes. Yeah, that <laughs> this time I rewatching it. I I don't think I watched it last year. I think I put it on and then I got busy doing something. Yeah, I like, yeah, didn't yeah. sit down and watch it last year. But like being a couple years removed from it and watching it when the cops showed up, I was like, oh, OK, yeah, yeah. This is the moment where he like reveals himself because that's just like that feels it's, it's set up yeah, yeah. it's yeah. christmas it feels, eve and the way and like you know with the, with the runtime and the structure yeah. of the film you're like this is where he stands up and he says it's okay officers i'm the homeowner and i you know have approved everyone to be here and they all go whoa and then when he doesn't yeah. do it i was like oh yeah there's that scene later <laughs> in the like boardroom um so yeah maybe maybe some structural issues maybe you know maybe a a more seasoned studio exec 
would have uh would have made some some notes on on the runtime of this one yeah and then going off that with the structure with that it's like again it's who's our who's our main character mm-hmm. here because it's it's kind of all over the place where we're starting off with victor moore uh as mckeever but he's just kind of he kind of he's he's kind of a uh, he's a hobo but he's a kind of a traveling character like he's in the movie but he's not really he's 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 the like voice of reason i guess a little bit but even then he's not that because he's also like i don't like working so you guys work for me um he's kind of the gesture of the film and then like don I mean, DeFore. in, in right. all fairness frank capra set this script aside for a script that opens with our guardian angel character introduces him True. and then spends 40 minutes on like a greatest hits clip of our main characters probably more like an an hour hour or so of it that's that's fair um very weird structure all around but that's true that's true but we we still have a main character we're following yeah we have a main character we have main character we're following every time i watch that movie though i do have to remind myself like an hour in i'm like this is the first time seeing him in like you know Human his life form. <laughs> everything yeah, yeah, we yeah. saw before was these like weird little uh yeah. video, whatever video they have a- video feed they have access to in heaven <laughs> look at this god's playing with a 4k up there as it was <laughs> the time he was way ahead of the game i want to show you his 4k video of george <laughs> bailey's memories um <laughs> uh, no yeah so the, the, the count again it's like then it's like don defore but then he doesn't really have really anything like the character is not really that interesting. There's no mm. complexity to that character. Um, he has a good, he has a great intro, but then he's just kind of very straightforward. And then we don't really get complexity until Charles Ruggles comes in as Mike, which is probably about 25, 30 minutes into the movie, 25 minutes in the movie, I think. Um, it's not a little bit more. And I feel like we just need, we need, we need more of kind of a through line is that it, it ends up being a lot of vin- feels not vin- kind of vignettes we were talking about, um and we don't really know how a person we're following against like mm-hmm. charles ruggles i think is the main character and if we're just talking about billing of it he's the the fourth build actor on this movie so like i don't think he was and i don't think he's even really on the posters the later posters at least um as the top as a top person so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i'd agree with you it's 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 unconventional for sure <laughs> yes but charming a charming very charming very charming which is probably why we wish it was a little bit shorter um yep all right just a couple of film facts uh so one of the songs from the film that's what christmas means to me became a modest success for songwriter harry revel revel was a songwriter and film composer but he is best remembered as one of the first composers to bring the theremin into western music composition and his 1947 concept album, Harry Revel's Music Out of the Moon, is credited as being the beginning of the space age pop genre of the 1950s. Wow. I, listen, I listened to it while I was writing the script today. It's um, it's not as sci-fi as you think it would be, but you okay. can see why it would like lead you down. It's, 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 the rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah, it's very just kind of cinematic orchestral music, but then every once in a while there's like a little woo oh <laughs> the theremin coming in yeah uh 
just another note that I thought was fun. Uh, Lorraine McLean, who was the costume designer of this film, was the studio stylist for Monogram Pictures. But she had been a notable actress in the 1930s, appearing in uh, several films. Uh, she was often paired up with Carol Lombard near the beginning of oh, her career as well. That's cool. Awards time. This okay. one's going to be interesting. I don't know where we're going to go with this. Uh, Beatrice Strait Award for the actor actress with limited scenes that kills it. I wish I knew that the Taylor the uh, Taylor is pretty funny to me. Um, mm. I, I might go because we talked about him uh, as the patrolman uh, mm. Edward Brophy, who's the the one about the his wife. That's 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 who I was gonna. Yeah, he 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 was a great. He was really good a character actor. Uh, great face, really great great face. Um, yeah, worked for. Oh, he was also in Freaks. That's what he was in. Mm. Uh, great film. He also plays um, the voice of Timothy Q. Mouse and Dumbo. Oh wow! So he's uh, he's the he's the uh, the mouse who becomes Dumbo's only friend. Wow! So he, I guess he's a, I guess he's telling us a top build actor because Dumbo doesn't speak. Um, <laughs> but he 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 was a great character actor, so I, I would go with him. Nice. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Start. Oh, oh, he was production manager. Speaking of Buster Keaton, he was production manager for Buster Keaton's The Cameraman. Hmm. Uh, an actor failed to show up and rather than having wait for the studio to send a substitute Keaton recruited Brophy on the spot to take the actor's place so that's how you guys start in acting or, or, or one of them starts in acting he was mainly doing like uh, um, assist, assistant directing and second unit directing in the 1920s until that uh, also not not bringing him up for the award but uh, shout out to Alan Hale Jr. I think this was like his third or fourth credited role in this okay uh went on to be the skipper on gilligan's island oh my god you're right that is him yep so he's he's one of the veterans yeah it is. yeah i think they call him he's the blonde one i think they call Damn, him like blondie wow. or something is his name oh my god that that, that just hit me okay <laughs> yeah but yeah we'll go with we'll go with uh go with edward brophy the annie potts x-factor award for the supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable Okay. These these two awards are between two people, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out where you want to put them. Because basically, I'm trying to split this between Charles Ruggles and Victor Moore for me. Yeah, this one this one is Charles Ruggles. Like okay. we said, it's it's, we'll go it's weird Ruggles that here. it's Charles Ruggles because he yeah, should be the main character. Of this movie. He should be the main character. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a little bit of cheating, but um, yeah. Okay. But he is not the main character of. You know, he should be, but he's not. And so, yeah, yeah, I think it very easily goes to him. Yeah. Charlie Ruggles. um, Also a good character actor. Um, A movie I really like him in is called uh, Love Me Tonight. I think I talked about this on the show before. It's a musical uh, that he's in. But the opening I watch and you go, oh, yeah, this is Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) It's basically it's basically a little town and Beauty and the Beast is the opening of Love Me Tonight. Um, with the pacing, everyone's it's in Paris. Everyone's waking up. The morning starting. Like ev- everyone's coming out into the city. It's very much like a little town in Beauty and the Beast. Um, but he's he's good in this movie. May I ask, what are you doing here? Same thing you're doing here. I came to meet Jim. Hmm. And have you had that extreme pleasure? I have, and I found him to be everything Trudy said he was. Oh, indeed, indeed. You've taken on a little weight since I last saw you. In the wrong places. It's the clothes. 
And you're no Van Johnson yourself. I can remember when you only had one chin. Indeed. Well, let me tell you... Stop shushing me. I won't... We're going to dispose of this nonsense once and for all. Imagine an 18-year-old girl wanting to marry this... You married me when I was 17. And look what happened to us. Nothing happened to us that a little fidelity couldn't have cured. Are you accusing me of infidelity? I am. You left me and married your money. Nonsense. All right, which brings us to our Gene Hackman MVP award for the person who carries this movie. It has to, it has to be Victor Moore then. Yeah. Because um, I guess you could argue the movie's charming, but it's it's Victor Moore's warmth that probably like surrounds the entire film. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's you know it's it's a it's a I think it would be a very that's a very tough performance to hit this kind of yeah. lovable vagabond who's like somewhat stern with this he, he's he's loving he's good-hearted but he's also uh you know his patience is tried by having all these people there but he obviously cares for him a lot it's it's a, it's a tough yeah. role and i think he it absolutely is. nails it i agree all good things must come to an end soon the o'connor servants will be coming back uh, taking down the boards Tomorrow, we must put the house in order so that everything will be just as we found it. Tonight is our last night together. Our paths may never cross again. And I would like to feel that you're all my friends. For to be without friends is a serious form of poverty. Final questions. Do you want to, are, are we recasting this? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Who you got? There's a few I'm still trying to figure out, so feel free to. Okay. It's a big cast. I, we don't have to do all I, of it. I don't, I don't have a Don to four. Okay. So you want to figure out Don to four. I have, but, but I had the other four, the main cast four. Um, so for, for Mike O'Connor, I got Brian Cranston. Okay. Yeah. And Brian Cranston. His his second Christmas film, second Christmas film for Mary <laughs> O'Connor. Mm-hmm. I have Jamie Lee, I have Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, okay. Her second Christmas film. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe more, maybe more. Christmas with the cranks. Uh, Christmas with the cranks. Trading places. I mean, trading places. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. um, she's a holiday queen. Um, <laughs> for uh, Trudy, this is an actress I like, and, and and she's been in stuff that I think she's good in. I don't know if she's been great. Stuff movies and that's lily collins mm. i mm-hmm. like lily collins a lot and i've, I've even watched emily in paris because of her <laughs> because i like her a lot um i thought she was good in mank uh i thought she was good in a movie called to the bone um where she plays i think it was a girl with uh she was anorexic i think um someone else in that movie with her i think it was keanu yeah keanu um on uh um it's on netflix it was on netflix i don't know if it still is um but <laughs> it was I think a netflix she's good. movie who knows it was a netflix movie who knows nowadays it was probably licensed somewhere to be paid on amazon so someone can make their money and yeah um i like her i mean there's zoe deutsch is also like a good is also a follow-up <laughs> if you want to go that but I, lily collins i haven't cast her i don't think in a lot so mm-hmm. i'll go with her i i wrote down two people for um mckeever mm-hmm. both very different One's Lawrence Fishburne. Ooh, okay. And one's Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Paul, he's Paul, so hot right now, you know? 
I know, I know. It's hard to get him. It's like, this is five years ago. He's coming off like San Andreas. Mm-hmm. Like, this would be great for him. As long as you work around his billion schedule, you're good. But yeah, they're, now billions is done, right? Is it done? I think yeah, it's billion, done. Billion, billions, I think it's done. Yes. And now he's got, now he's riding a holdovers heat wave. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you got to go Paul G. I love Lawrence Fishburne, but I think you got to go Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti fits the most with that. And then. I'll throw you. I'll throw you Don DeFore. Uh, someone I like a lot, but I don't. I don't think we've we've put him in something on here. Um, but uh, he's got some comedy chops coming off of a comedy show on HBO. But he he got he got military buff for a little movie called Top Gun Maverick. And that's Jay Ellis. Big Jay. Oh, Ellis I love. Guy. I do like him a lot. He would be good for this. I like Jay Ellis from Insecure. Um, I really like him. That's a good. That's a good pick. That's a good pick. I think we could, we could still lean into the to the military of it all for sure. I think so too. I mean, let's just say he's the same character as Top Gun Maverick. Say he's payback. <laughs> and he comes. He comes back to New York. And he's like, we, he's we like, did this impossible run. No one could do it. An impossible run. Like maybe something happened. He got blamed for it. And we can't. I can't even talk. It was in a. It was in a secret country. They never even told us what country <laughs> we were in while we were over there. Now I'm back, and they won't even give me a job. Yeah. No. And he has to deal with Brian Cranston. Oh man, I think I'm, I think I'm good. I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Let's go. All right. Uh, I'll just disappear, disappear for another thirty years. So does this fit with any other genres aside from uh, Christmas and Christmas in New York? How, how to describe this? American Dream movies. Does that make sense? Hmm. Like yeah. characters who are following the American Dream and. Yeah uh but like pursuit of happiness pursuit of happiness <laughs> i mean and it's, it's very weird it's just like someone pursuing something mm-hmm. um starting a business and so like starting a business uh um that's really the only ones that come to mind that that's like the in terms of like niche like genres or subgenres. Mm-hmm. um yeah and then just i think kind of the idea of like a comedy of manners uh yeah yeah I would agree with that. I, I was honestly, I was surprised when I started looking into this one that it wasn't like based on a play. I was like, this could have easily been a play. <laughs> could have been a play. It could be a play. Uh, so, final question: How does this film fit with the Christmas in New York genre? Well, we talk about how the idea with like, even though we we see very little of them actually in New York City. Um, I, I wrote down I was like they did not go to New York for this movie. No, I, no I absolutely not. They just they shot in front of a. Of a, of a yeah I, I actually you know for as as bad as the shots of him like walking down the street look i it, i think it is well done when they when they drive past the house for that establishing shot and it's yeah. very obviously like a house on like a lot uh yeah in la but then they've got these like matte paintings out to like extend yeah. out into new york beyond that house and it, it that's done fairly well and okay. i also like to see i i think the one that works too is when they when they, when they not them walking the park when they look back at Mike and he's on the bench and mm-hmm. then the, the background looks really good. Mm-hmm. That, that works for me. Yeah. But I mean, but obviously um, you know, the, the spirit of New York is here. It's very important that this guy is a Titan yeah, of yeah, industry. Sorry. So it's, um, even yeah. if they didn't shoot there, it's still story-wise, it's still very much set there. Yeah. No, I, I and again, but again, you still have the idea of like the talking about the consumerism a little bit and the, the, the class system and, and how like you take someone who's of the wealthy class in New York City and make the make them mm-hmm. kind of 
have a have a a, a warm heart again. Yeah, uh, and, and again, this, the, the, the I, whole the whole idea of snowbirding, like you know, this wouldn't have worked in L.A. because they wouldn't have left for the winter. <laughs> yeah, 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 that too, that too. Um, and and then also it's the idea of like again, t- using the war World War Two is the thing of like where a lot of these soldiers came home to New York or came from like to New York, stayed in New York after the war and like looking for a better life and. Mm-hmm. Some went west to L.A. or whatever, but a lot of them stayed in this in this period, in this part of this country, and they couldn't find anything. And so it's definitely like going into the New York symbol with the America and the American dream. And if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Um, and they're having trouble making it there because yeah. rich people are getting their way. Um, yeah. So yeah. yeah. And and I think you know to speak to the the Christmas of it all uh, and and our running theory that everything is just a Christmas Carol. Um, <laughs> you, you know there is a sequence in christmas carol in the in the ghost of christmas yet to come take scrooge and one of the scenes that he sees is a bunch of homeless people who are squatting in his house after yeah. he's died and, and are kind of like going through his things and talking yeah. about what kind of person he must have been based on his legacy which is just a bunch of stuff left behind with with no one to give it to and and it, it, yeah. it does kind of feel like the the plot of this or the the idea of this is taken from that scene and like what if that was yeah. extended out what the if this story, uh, yeah. what if this rich man was just kind of forced to see what the like lowest class has to think of him and and couldn't really yeah. protest and just had to kind of take it yeah that's so a good point that's a good everything point. everything is christmas carol every christmas everything movie is christmas, is christmas carol, christmas carol. <laughs> well all right it's in a, it's a, it happened on 5th avenue there we go. Hopefully you guys, if you're, if you're, you know, scrolling and you see it on Turner classic movies this year, we're hoping they'll have it back. We hope they have it back. Marty and uh, Marty and Steven go, go tell that David Zaslav to put this back on. And then red shoes for Marty. That's all we got to do. Like, <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so yeah. So uh, first off, uh, make sure you join our Patreon if you haven't already uh, to get more exclusive content last month. Uh, Thomas and I did The Kid Detective and Deadman Don't Wear Plaid. And then David and I did, um, we did uh, Night Moves, Gene Hackman. And then I know this month, Thomas and I will be talking about The Night Before, um, which is a fan fate or a favorite of Thomas's. And then we'll discuss kind of that. <laughs> and then I think David and I will be talking about Serendipity with Kate Beckinsale mm-hmm. and uh, John Cusack. Because a little bit, takes a little bit of Christmas, uh, I believe. Um, and two, two kind of under the radar movies. Mm-hmm. And I have, and I haven't, I haven't revisited the night before since it came out. Serendipity, I weirdly revisit every few years for some reason because it's like it was a period in life where we made a lot of those movies, Thomas. Those like mm-hmm. rom com Christmas movies. But yeah, but next week we're talking about another 1947 Christmas movie. <laughs> what a year! What a year for Christmas! What a films. year for Christmas movies! It was the beginning of it. And also, we'll talk about a, a, a little bit that deals with It's Wonderful Life and how it created snow. Which that was a big thing. Remember that? That was mm-hmm. like no one did Christmas movies until It's Wonderful Life because no one knew how to recreate snow for camera. And then we've had a bunch of Christmas movies right after that. But we're talking about Miracle on 34th Street, um, released in 1947. Uh, it, it is streaming on Max, I know. I believe it's also streaming on um, uh, uh, Prime. And then. It is also it's also streaming. Okay, it's streaming on. I mean, it's not streaming on Max. It's streaming on Prime, Disney Plus, and Hulu from Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. I could have sworn it was on Max, but I guess it's not. Um, but those three 
places if you can, if you can find it. Uh, be sure to watch that for next week. Uh, that'll now be our only three episodes for the for the month. Then we'll take taking Christmas off. Um, so enjoy these three episodes if you can. Uh, but yeah, that's all we have for this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us in this podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, and if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to subscribe to the show so you can stay up to our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to rise for your preferred podcast platform. The only thing that Brandon and I love more than a big steaming bowl of slum ghoulian is a five star is reading five star reviews from you guys. It's the best while, while 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 eating slum glulian. I do I do want to put one more little fact here on the on the tail end of for those of you who listen through the uh, the final tag on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> the etymology of the term slum glulian comes from slum, an old word for slime, and glulian, an English dialect term for mud or cesspool. What? Doesn't that sound delicious. That sounds disgusting. It's just beefaroni. It's good. I'm sure it's good, but who decided yeah. we're gonna call it when, mud cesspool as a dish? When, when I come to Atlanta, we're gonna make slum gulian, like gluten free right. slum gulian. Gl- yeah, yeah, gluten free slum gulian. It's gonna be delicious. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Um, and finally, don't forget live also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope to listen to more episodes soon. Bye.